Okay, so last week uh, we covered the life and the character of Martin Luther. Uh, we discussed Luther in his context. I don't know if you all remember. Uh, we spoke about Luther as a medieval man, both as a monk and a scholar, and even Luther as a family man. Uh, today I'll be focusing more on his theology. Uh, many of you are familiar with the moment when Luther is brought before the Holy Roman Empire at the Diet of Worms, where he is asked to recant everything that he wrote, uh, which consisted of all his theological views against abuses of indulgences, his views on justification, and his views that challenged papal authority, along with many other things that he wrote. And at that moment, uh, I'm sure this will sound familiar to you, but he says to the authorities, uh, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. And I am bound by scriptures that I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since, it's, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. And after that, in January of 1521, Luther is officially excommunicated by the Roman church for heresy and is then considered an outlaw by the state for holding to and teaching what they consider to be dangerous theology. Dangerous theology. What was his theology? Well, for certain we can affirm that the core of his theology was the rediscovery of the true doctrine of justification by grace alone, which he rightly understood to be the receiving of an alien righteousness that is received by faith as opposed to a righteousness that's achieved uh, meritoriously. But along with his doctrine, Luther held to many other points in theology that at the time may have still been in need of further reform. Uh, Luther was very much a theologian of his time, yet as the Reformation continued, even after Luther was gone, there were aspects of Luther's theology that further reformed through other men succeeding him like Zwingli and Calvin. Today I'm going to share with you some of these key views that stood out in Martin Luther's theology, both the good and the bad. So I'll share with you both, uh, both sides. Uh, I've broken down some of the key views into five categories. So I, I wanted to format it in a way where it's organized, because there's a lot of things that Luther believed. Uh, so I'm going to format it uh, using the five solas. Uh, sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, and Soli Deo Gloria. I'm going to use that as sort of a template, and each category, I'm going to talk about things related to that doctrine, um, and, and you'll see some things that we would align with and some things that we would not align with. Um, sola Scriptura. Interestingly, there wasn't any controversy between Martin Luther and the Roman Catholic Church regarding the ins uh, inspiration of Scripture. Uh, 
The real question had to do with the relationship of inspired scripture to tradition. So it wasn't, there wasn't any beef with the inspiration of scripture. There was beef with what the Catholic Church held to in regards to the inspiration of scripture and its relation to church tradition. In other words, is scripture alone God's inspired and inerrant word, the source and norm for Christian faith and practice? That's what's in question. Is that sufficient? Is scripture alone sufficient? Could the Pope say truly that his words are equal to those of Peter and Paul as we find them in scripture? Well, that's what they did. The Pope would uh, make statements and the states the statements were considered as authoritative as scripture. A question, are councils infallible in the same way as scripture? The Roman Catholic Church at the time and still today view their councils and what some of the theological points that they would conclude with in their councils as equally as authoritative as scripture. And uh, between 1543 through 1563, the Council of Trent, it was a Catholic council, argued that scripture and tradition are actually two streams that form one river that make up God's words. So, in other words, scripture and tradition considered together equals God's word. So it wasn't just this, it was this. They would read the doctrine and then they would consider tradition and together they would come to some sort of theological conclusion and that theological conclusion was God's word uh, according to the Roman Catholic Church. And this word consisted of not only of the written books but also the unwritten traditions that of course the Roman uh, pontiff has the privilege of determining what those things are. Uh, so both scripture and these traditions, the church receives and venerates with an equal affection of piety and reverence, as both have been preserved in the Catholic Church by continuous succession. So whatever the previous pope, previous generation, some of the things that they concluded, that would carry on and that would inform uh, certain doctrines that they would hold to be absolute truth, uh, absolutely God's word. But then here comes our hero of the day, Martin Luther, and his view of what we call sola scriptura, which is the doctrine that the Bible holds the ultimate authority, and it's the Bible alone, apart from tradition. Because it was his view that tradition could be misinterpreted, tradition uh, could be filled with all kinds of incidences that weren't in line with scripture, and uh, Luther held that only scripture and scripture alone uh, would make a final judgment on what is God's word. Ironically though, Luther's defense of sola scriptura was condemned by Rome as uh, schismatic or divisive. However, the ancient fathers, those before the development at this point of the Roman Catholic Church, those ancient fathers both in the East and the West would have regarded the Roman position as an act of schism itself. In other words, Rome didn't always hold to that view. The early church would have looked at Rome's current position and said, oh, that's false, that's not right, scripture alone. 
This goes to show that long before the Reformation, the church fathers and other highly esteemed early church theologians also argued that scripture alone is normative and the councils existed simply to interpret scripture and not to make policies of their own ideas until the Council of Trent's condemnation of Sola Scriptura, the idea of Sola Scriptura was left as a possibility. They didn't, they didn't, you know, they didn't fight against it. But when the Reformation came and they pushed those buttons, the church said, you know what? Sola Scriptura is, is wrong. It wasn't until uh, after the Council of Trent that Rome reacted against uh, the Reformation by almost slamming the door shut on this concept of Sola Scriptura. Luther's problem with the Catholic Church was fundamentally a problem of scriptural authority. If you think about everything that he was trying to reform, what his issues were, it, you can trace it back to this one issue. Who's going to make the decision on what's right, right? What, how do we determine what is true and what is false, according to God? And that's an issue of scriptural authority. And that's the fundamental issue um, that uh, brought about the Reformation. If the scriptures weren't, uh, were to be considered the source of all of church doctrine, then it would simply be a matter of returning to proper interpretation. If there were differences, then it's just a matter of going back to the Bible and saying, well, let's, let's see if we can interpret this right. But that wasn't the issue. Since Rome does not see that the Bible alone is, is ultimate authority, it allowed room for strange theological positions, which Luther saw as a major problem. And check this out. We can, we can actually trace this issue back to some Aristotelian ideas combined with uh, some of the theological developments of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and, his, and Thomas Aquinas's ideas of the human condition in which influenced this view and check, check this out. This was something that was way before. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, his influence in theology uh, kind of pushed this view that the unaided mind can discover absolute truth without the Bible. So the unaided mind can do with a natural theology. They can look at a truth, objective truth, things that they would know to be absolute truth, and from that, they can develop a, the, a theology uh, that would be consistent with a theology that was faithful to what we have in Scripture. So, um, again, uh, the, the view is that uh, the unaided mind can discover absolute truth, and with that, you get a kind of natural theology that allowed for theologians to develop uh, theological conclusions from rationality that to them were considered necessities without the need of scripture to reveal it. Uh, this was called the Via Antiqua or Antiqua, um, which is basically a Latin for the way of antiquity or the way of old. That was that train of thought. However, a man by the name of William of Ockham critiqued this, these ideas. They, he critiqued the Via Antiqua by expressing the danger of developing theological conclusions based on natural theology, which in his perspective is the reason why the Catholic Church has come up with so many unbiblical theological doctrines. Have you ever, have you ever I was going to say, have you ever read uh, some of the creeds 
of uh, the, the Catholic Church, but you, you don't even have to read it. You can walk in the uh, cathedral and, and, or, or even sit in at a, at a mass and see uh, like how on planet earth did these people develop this kind of theology? I read my Bible every day. I got early morning devotions, and I would have never concluded with this mess. <laughs> and and uh, again, this was this is what happens when you, when uh, theologians, scholars get together and they develop theology based off based on natural theology. Again, I'm not against natural theology. I think it exists, um, but there's there's an extreme where uh, it's not checked by scripture. Uh, so again, uh, Ockham, William Ockham, believes that theology must be based on revelation. It can't be based on rationality. It has to be based on uh, revelation. Namely, divine revelation, which is another way of saying it has to be based on wherever God revealed his truth, which is the scriptures. Uh, now, again, I don't want to give the impression that natural theology is a bad thing. However, we see how it got carried away. And to be fair, Occam didn't want to destroy medieval theology, but he wanted to recover it from the clouds because these people developed these theological positions that, you know, the fruit of it was a lot of corruption. And Luther understood this issue and lined up his theology with those concepts. In fact, in his defense of Sola Scriptura, Luther was even criticized as one who sounded like a follower of William Ockham. Even though we know that Luther was a late medieval theologian, he simply saw the reality that popes and councils could make error, and therefore scripture must be the final and ultimate place for God's truth. Uh, medieval popes increasingly held that they alone were endowed with the Holy Spirit in such a way as to be preserved from error in their judgment. This was just you know, what they thought the nature of their office was, that the, the Holy Spirit empowers them and they can make judgments without mistakes. But even that idea was not found in Scripture or in the teaching even of the ancient fathers. And it was an innovation that opened the floodgate to a bunch of problems. Luther argued, he says this, and I quote, when the teaching of the Pope is distinguished from that of the Holy Scriptures or as compared with them, it becomes apparent that, at its best, the teaching of the Pope has been taken from the imperial pagan laws and is a teaching concerning secular transactions and judgments, as the papal uh, decretals show. In keeping with such teachings, instructions are given concerning the ceremonies of the church, vestments, food, personnel, and countless of other things fantasies and follies without so much as a mention of Christ and a mention of faith and even a mention of God's commandments, end quote. For Luther, the first pillar of sola scriptura is scripture's very own nature. As the Holy Spirit, uh, as the Holy Spirit's direct revelation through prophets and apostles, scripture is in a class by itself. The character of God is at stake in the character of scripture. Why is scripture inerrant, for example? Why do we consider the Bible inerrant? Luther says, because we know that God does not lie. My neighbor and I, in short, all men may err and deceive, but God's word cannot err. That's what Luther says. 
For this reason, Luther knew that Scripture was the one thing that we can trust. <clears throat> now, with this doctrine, Luther didn't disregard tradition. That's sometimes a, a contemporary problem, too. I think uh, in the Protestant church today, there's this uh, desire to want to reinvent the wheel often and not consider the counsel of, of, of those before us. That, that wasn't Luther's intent. Uh, Luther did not want to disregard tradition completely. He did see how the wisdom that has been passed down uh, as tradition is, is, he always saw it as something always worth considering. However, it wasn't to be taken as the word of God as the Roman Catholic Church did. Luther says, and I quote, he says, we respect the church fathers and ancient councils as guides, but only God can establish articles of faith. I will, I, I will not do to make articles of faith out of the Holy Fathers, words, or works. Otherwise, what they ate, how they dressed, and what kind of house they lived in would have to become articles of faith too. You see what I'm saying? Uh, that, that's... Uh, Luther saying, you know, bringing it to its logical con conclusion. If these guys were inerrant, then so were what they ate and how they ate it and what they wore. Uh, and uh, uh, look at how he closes that. He says, otherwise, what they ate, how they dressed, and what kind of house they lived in would have become articles of faith, as has happened in the case of relics. This means that the word of God shall be established articles of faith and no one else, not even an angel, Luther says. <clears throat> so, uh, with that said, we see the foundation of all that Luther stood for in the Reformation, and it, the foundation was this uh, issue of what is or where can we find final authority when it comes to God's word, and it is understood from, from Luther that it is the authority of Scripture and Scripture alone. Now, let's look at the second category. The second category is sola gratia. Sola gratia. Which means uh, grace alone. Now, as we come to understand Luther's view of grace, it is best understood when we remember that Luther suffered the heavy burdens of works righteousness as a monk. Y'all remember some of the things that we talked about uh, with Luther's experience as a monk. Uh, <clears throat> he, he really suffered the heavy burden of works righteousness. Luther says a great, he says a great quote about it, and I'm going to read it now. He says this, and I quote, If ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. And then further along he says, Christ was given not for uh, pecune and imaginary transgressions, but for mountainous sins, not for one or two, but for all, not for sins that can be discarded, but for sins that are stubbornly, stubbornly ingrained, end quote. Uh, and in another occasion, Luther says, I fasted myself to death, for again and again I went, uh, I went for Three days without taking a drop of water or a morsel of food. I was very serious about it. I chose 21 saints and prayed every day when I celebrated the Mass. Thus, I completed every week. He did all this in a week. 
I prayed especially to the Blessed Virgin, who with her womanly heart would compassionately appease her son. This is bad theology. And, and Luther is sharing this as to say, like, if anyone was a serious monk, I was a serious monk. Luther then comes back and he provides his own commentary on what he just said. He says, the pious monk, the pious monk is the worst scoundrel because he denies that Christ is the mediator and the high priest and turns him into a judge. I guess if we bring it to modern application, the most pious person, the person that's walking in so-called holiness without considering the cross and what Jesus Christ did for him should be considered one of the worst of men because what they're doing is trampling on the sacrifice of Christ and, and denying Christ as mediator. And uh, finally, here's some great words from Luther on salvation by grace alone. Uh, these quotes are from a sermon that he did based off of uh, Tim, uh, Titus 3, 4 through 8. Um, and you can actually buy like volumes of Luther's sermons. Um, but specifically the sermon that he did on Titus 3, 4 through 8, Luther says, he says this, So he, referring to Paul, discards all boasted free will, all human virtue, righteousness and good works. He concludes that they are nothing and are wholly perverted, however brilliant and worthy they may appear, and teaches that we must be saved solely by the grace of God, which is effective for all believers who desire it from a correct, uh, from a correct conception of their own ruin and nothingness. Yes, dear friend, you must first possess heaven and salvation before you can do good works. Works never merit heaven, Heaven is conferred purely of grace. The delusive doctrine of works blinds the Christian's eyes, perverts a right understanding of faith, and forces him from the way of truth and salvation. He who does not receive salvation purely through grace, independently of all good works, certainly will never secure it. Truly then, we are saved by grace alone, without works or other merit. Notice... All who believe have eternal life. He's referring to a passage that he, he cross-referenced there. I think it was John 3.16. He says, notice in this passage, all who believe have eternal life. That being true, believers certainly are just and holy without works. Works contribute to nothing to justification. It is affected by pure grace richly poured out upon us. We receive absolution or forgiveness and grace at no cost or labor on our part. But, turn the page, computer, not with, without cost and labor on the part of Christ. Our salvation must exist, not in our righteousness, but in Christ's righteousness. Let his righteousness and grace, not yours, be your refuge. If you're worried about how good of a Christian you are, and uh, again, the, there may be good reasons for that, right? You, you want to make sure that you're in the faith. But if, if, if that is the basis of your justification, then, that, then you have no refuge. Your refuge must be in the work of Christ and Christ alone. As an Augustinian monk, Luther was well acquaint, acquainted with the writings of St. Uh, Augustine of Hippo and his strong emphasis on the grace of God 
even the common view within the Roman Catholic Church at that time was that Augustine went too far with his doctrine of grace, but Luther didn't think so. Luther thinks that Augustine was right on. If anything, Luther would have wished that Augustine would have carried his view of grace over into other areas of doctrine, which, you know, when you read Augustine, there are some things that you say, yeah, I don't know how, I don't know why he's come to that theological conclusion when he has such a strong um, conviction about the grace and the sovereignty of God, um, how, how that works together. But regardless, Luther, Luther was Augustinian in the sense that he, uh, he, he really believed that we were saved by grace and grace alone. Anyway, hopefully those quotes help you see Luther's doctrine of grace. The next one is sola fide, which is faith alone. Let me take a sip. In Luther's day, the Roman Catholic Church had developed a massive penitential system. And when it came to receiving any kind of forgiveness and having absolution for sins, the, cat, the Catholic Church had three steps. Step number one is that the sinner must have a contrite heart or contrite heart. Step number two is that the sinner must go through confession to a priest and receive forgiveness. Step number three is that the sinner, even after receiving forgiveness from the priest, must perform an act of satisfaction, which is basically an act of penance. Where did they get this concept from? Well, for example, when we read Matthew 3, 2, where it says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That passage, the word repent was translated in the Latin Vulgate in Luther's time as penitentium agitae. That's, that's how you say that, that word. Which meant, at least in that translation, the word repent in that translation meant do penance. And this is what the whole system was built upon in the Roman Catholic Church. When they would read passages about repentance, it was translated to them as go and do penance. However, when Luther sought out the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, the word originally translated in Greek for repentance actually is the word metanoia, which actually means change your mind. That's a big difference from go and do penance. Change your mind. Now, there is a world of difference from doing penance to changing your mind, and this is where Luther was able to see with a clearer sight what salvation was all about. It wasn't until Luther's tower experience that Luther understood fully the concept of justification by faith alone. In his reading of Romans 1.17, which states, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That passage, Luther understood that righteousness that has been revealed by God. He understood that righteousness to be a righteousness, uh, the Latin word is ex extraños. In Spanish, we say extraños, which is very similar. 
um, which extraños is like a foreigner or an alien. Uh, and Luther understood that righteousness as uh, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that he couldn't conjure up within himself. And when he read that passage and interpreted it correctly, that's what that's saying, that God has revealed a righteousness that's apart from you, that he reveals himself, and by placing your faith in him, you receive that righteousness by imputation. Imputation means you're counted as righteous by placing your faith in the one who is righteous. Uh, So again, specifically, this is talking about the righteousness of Christ that is now counted for us when we place our faith in Christ's atoning work. Anyway, to conclude sola fide, here's a quote from Luther about uh, sola fide. Luther says, faith is a work of God in us, which changes us and brings us to birth anew from God. It kills the old Adam makes us completely different people in heart, mind, senses, and all our powers, and brings the Holy Spirit with it. What a living, creative, active power or powerful thing is faith. It is impossible that faith ever stop doing good. Faith does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before it is asked, it has done them. It is always active. However, I'm sorry, whoever doesn't do such works is without faith. He gropes and searches about him for faith and good works, but doesn't know what faith or good works are. Even so, he chatters on with uh, a great many words about faith and good works. So, again, Luther is stressing just that same point that we are saved by faith alone, and that is the good work that was done in Christ uh, applied to us, and through faith, Uh, we receive that good gift. All right, let's go to Solus Christus. Solus Christus. I want to start this category with a quote from Luther on the sufficiency of Christ. This is what Luther says. The devil does not intend to allow this testimony about Christ. He devotes all his energy to opposing it and will not uh, desist until he has struck it down and suppressed it. In this respect, we humans are weak and stubbornly perverse and are more likely to become attached to saints than to Christ. Within the papacy, they have preached about the service rendered by these beloved saints that one ought to rely on their merit. And I too believed and preached this. Saint Anne was my idol said Luther. And St. Thomas was my apostle. I patterned myself substantially after them. Others ran to St. James and strongly believed and firmly trusted that. If they confirmed, they would receive all they wished and hoped for. Prayers were said to St. Barbara and St. Christopher in order to advert an early and sudden death. And there was no uncertainty there. So, completely is man by nature bent on renouncing this testimony of John the Baptist, which was to repent and believe. For this reason, it is, necessary, it is necessary constantly to persevere and adhere to John's testimony concerning Christ. For it, it requires toil and effort to continue with word and testimony. For a person at death to be able to say, I must die, 
But I have a Savior concerning whom John the Baptist testified. On him and on no other creature, either in heaven or on earth, do I rely. That's a scary thought sometimes when you when you imagine yourself in, the, in your deathbed. Maybe you're in the hospital and you're minutes away from passing away. Um, you know, ask yourself, you know, have you trusted completely with nothing that you bring to that? No factor included in that equation. Have you trusted completely in the work of Christ? Is that where your faith lies? Um, what, what's the... Uh, What's the apologist guy that recently passed away? Does anyone remember his name? Uh, he was always side by side with uh, Ravi Zacharias. Does anyone remember his name? I, I'm not sure if that's him. Nabil, is that how you say Nabil? Okay. Yes, that's, that's him. I just remember watching a video recently um, where he was in the hospital bed and he was just confessing how his heart and his soul was, you know, disturbed, um, not in a way that he doubted the faith, but that he was facing a time where really, like, the faith had to be put in action there. I mean, um, you know, he had, he had to take some time to reflect and really analyze and see where he was at. I just remember seeing his face, and it was kind of scared me a little bit, because, you know, as, as humans, we, you know, we're all over the place when it comes to emotion and thoughts and where we place our trust in. And um, he asked for prayer, you know, but no doubt his faith was on the cross, on Christ and what he accomplished. But one day, you know, you never know when that is that you will, you will come to this point where you have to really be trusting in the gospel and nothing else. Uh, thank God, though, that he gives us the grace to believe. Uh, so it's, it's not by our own strength. Um, but again, I think it's, it's good to take advantage of, of, of these things, uh, seeing someone like that just sort of testify in, their, in the very last hours of their life um, about the importance of relying on, the Christ, uh, on Christ's work. Seeing that kind of helps us to see uh, and to analyze ourselves and to, and to think, you know, are we really trusting in Christ and Christ alone? And Luther fought heavy for that doctrine. Um, nothing temporal could uh, accomplish the work uh, that Christ has done, and all we really have in the end of the day is what Jesus Christ has done. So again, that, that's, uh, that's on uh, Solus Christus there. I, I want to get into something that is interesting about Martin Luther with the time remaining. Luther has some different views on certain things, certain doctrines that we would, we would not agree with. Um, considering his position on grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, Luther held to an interesting view of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, that may have seemed to be almost contradictory to all that he stood for. Some theologians today would argue that his views of the sacraments are, not, are, are actually not in conflict with his doctrine of sola fide and sola gratia and solus Christus. But honestly, I'm not sure that's the case. When I read some of these things, you know, it, it seems to affect some of the 
essential doctrines that we would hold to, that he fought for. The best place to go for Lutheran, the Lutheran view of baptism is Martin Luther himself and his writings. His small catechism gives a brief yet profound explanation. So the good thing about catechisms is it's done in question and answer. Look at this question. Question number one is, what is baptism? Actually, I'm not sure if that's question number one there, but this is the first one I'm reading here. What is baptism? Luther responds, baptism is not just plain water, but it is the water included in God's command and combined with God's word. Okay. Which is that word of God? His response is, Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay. What benefits does baptism give? Luther answers, it works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this as the words and promises of God declare. I'm not sure that's orthodox. Which are these words, this is another question, which are these words and promises of God? Luther answers, Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Mark, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Another question, how can water do such great things? Luther says, Certainly not just water, but the word of God in and with the water does these things. Along with the faith which trusts this word of God in the water. For without God's word, the water is plain water and no baptism. But with the word of God, it is a baptism. That is, a life-giving water, rich in grace, and, wash, and, and a washing of the new birth in the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3. Uh, another question, what does such baptizing with water indicate? He would say it indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in, righteous, excuse me, in righteousness and purity forever. Um, he goes on, I don't want to go through all the questions, but there is a question that says, or not a question, but a statement that says, what we believe about baptism And this is what he says. Baptism is essentially a means by which he has chosen to bring us his spirit and the forgiveness of sins. God often uses things which seem ordinary to do miraculous works. He speaks to us through a book. He came to us in human flesh. He even spoke through us through a donkey. God often hides himself in ordinary elements as he reveals himself. This is the same with with the water of baptism. We believe in baptismal regeneration. That's why I say, I do this with, when I'm reading it, I go, okay, put that away. I don't know if I, I, could, I, don't know if I could get down with that. In fact, I know I can't get down with that. Um, so, again, I, I only share these things so that you can see the reality of Luther. Sometimes you watch a documentary or a, a movie about Luther, and Luther's this, you know, superhero, and he was. The Lord used him in great ways. He, you know, opened up the door for, um, you know, what we have in Protestantism and the doctrines that we have uh, in, you know, the solas. Uh, I got to move on for the sake of time. 
Uh, by the way, if anyone has any questions, you just ask me afterwards. I'll be more than happy to share some of this stuff. Luther on the Lord's Supper. One of the catechism questions is, what is the sacrament of the Eucharist, or what is the sacrament of the altar? The answer is the true body. Okay? His answer is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ is the sacraments. In and under the bread and wine, which we would label as consubstantiation. It wasn't exactly the same thing as the Roman Catholic's view of, of the Lord's Supper, but it was very close. Uh, the only distinction was the Roman Catholic Church believed that the actual substance of the bread and the wine actually became the, the flesh and the blood of Jesus. And the Lutheran view is um, that it is the body and the blood, but um, in some metaphysical way, the body and the blood was underneath the bread and the wine. It's not the Reformed view. Uh, not at all. Again, we see that even Luther's view of the Lord's Supper differs from the Reformed view. I won't interact with that today, as much as I love to talk about it. Um, we're going to be talking about John Calvin in about three weeks, and that'll be a perfect opportunity to share some of the differences between Luther and how, you know, further reform happened, even in some of these doctrines. I got a minute, and I have a very very fun portion. I'm going to try to do this in a minute, maybe a two. We'll see. Uh, this is the last one. Soli Deo Gloria. Under this category, Soli Deo Gloria, which means glory to God alone, I want us to consider Martin Luther's perspective on God's kingdom and its presence here on earth. With the rise of many social issues that has been going on in society today, to be quite honest with you, this topic uh, of the church's role in public life has been a hot topic even for us here in this church. Oftentimes after service, we'll get together and we'll talk about the top, this topic of the church's role in public life. And oftentimes, we've referred to the term uh, two-kingdom theology as a way to describe what most of us believe is sort of a way to understand the church's involvement in, in uh, politics and culture if there is if there even is an involvement in that realm or in that sphere. We have often understood these matters under a set of categories, things like church and state or sacred and secular. But for right now, I'm just going to take a step back and talk about Luther's understanding of the church's involvement in society, uh, which is what, we, what he would call or what we would call the two-kingdom view of Martin Luther. I want to start with Luther's view of vocation, which is another word for calling. If you remember Luther's context, anyone who felt a calling from God would assume, at least in the late medieval time, that they were either called to be a monk or a nun or a priest. A calling from God usually was understood as a call to leave the world behind and pursue private and segregated devotion to God. However, after Luther's Reformation, he began to see that a calling or a vocation isn't only limited to ecclesiastical offices. He understood biblically that vocation or calling is what God does through people instead of what we think we can do for God by joining a monastery. Um, 
he understood biblically that vocations is what God does through people instead of what we think we can do for God. And with that understanding, he was able to see that the common worker was essentially a tool in God's hands that God would use to bring about what he wanted in society. That's Martin Luther's view. An example is a farmer, let's just say, imagine a farmer who milks a cow, which then makes milk available for distribution, which then feeds hundreds of people, which includes the well-being of individuals, in which may include the well-being of ministers of the word, and, uh, and are uh, the people who preach the, who preach the gospel and contribute to spiritual work. In other words, every vocation is a vocation that contributes in some way to spiritual work or a spiritual work of God in the manner in which God providentially orchestrates it. This is a big point that Luther made in contrast to the false notion that only an ecclesiastical job was considered to be a spiritual job. In other words, for Luther, it wasn't only the people in the churches the priests, the bishops that were doing a spiritual job. Luther developed the theology of vocation and he based it off of 1 Corinthians 7.17 which says, only let a person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. So with that said, this speaks on Luther's two-kingdom theology. Uh, The modern two-kingdom view is loosely summarized this way, that God has two ways of dealing with the world. One is a spiritual kingdom, which is the church, and an earthly kingdom, which is the state and secular society. One side is ruled by God and the other is ruled by man, although they would acknowledge God's sovereignty in both. In a sense, a Christian lives in both worlds, but truly belonged to the spiritual kingdom. And anything that will be counted acceptable before God is that which is part of the spiritual kingdom, not the earthly kingdom. That's a summary of that view, a modern two-kingdom view. However, the two-kingdom view understood by Martin Luther were not a separation of church and state necessarily, or sacred or secular, but rather temporal and spiritual However, even within Luther's understanding of these two kingdoms, temporal and spiritual, the distinction in Luther's view is that he saw both sides ruled and affected by God's ruling. Um, I'm just going to fast forward, uh, just for the sake of time. Luther saw clergy, pope, priests, bishops on on an equal plane with those whom today we would see working a secular job. He saw them both as equally beneficial to the kingdom of God. Uh, Vocation in the church or vocation in the world, Luther still saw it as a spiritual work, which opens the door for uh, uh, an understanding of vocation that permitted the church to get involved in acts of mercy to people in society, fighting for injustices, getting involved in politics, uh, even involving the civil magistrates to play a role in church by punishing heretics. Um, and so this was, this was Luther's view of, you know, two kingdoms. 
Uh, he saw that the earthly vocations served the law of God while any ecclesiastical vocations served the gospel. He saw both of them as serving um, the kingdom of God in some sense, shape, or form. If you're interested in this, let me know. We can talk about it. There's a lot of implications about that and how that affects uh, the church's involvement in society or whether or not church has a call to be doing that in the first place. This concludes our discussion on Martin Luther. Uh, I got some book recommendations if you're interested. Um, some primary sources if you're interested. Let me pray. Father, we thank you once again for men like Martin Luther, who, although imperfect, has led the way in rediscovering important and essential truths that now have been carried forward to us. Uh, we see some deviations that we believe were uh, understood by Luther that uh, we probably wouldn't hold to, uh, but we appreciate what you've done through men like him and men in the past. Um, we know that all this is not man's doing, but the work of your spirit as, as, as your spirit directs his people to truth. Uh, may you continue to raise men and women who will stand for your truth uh, from this generation and even the next generation, Lord. We thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.